This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to talk about Dana White saying he wouldn't even do an event with a gate where it was at 50% capacity. Why? We'll talk about it. Plus, from MLB Network Radio, Mike Farron will be here to discuss what is going on in baseball. Is there even going to be a season? And last but not least, why are people so against face masks? I really don't understand. We'll talk about that as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation at channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. All right, let's get into this part. I got to tell you, I don't understand Dana's thinking, and I think Cobb is is with me on this one a little bit here as well. So, listen, I, we, we, we talked about the problems that baseball has. Lord Jesus Christ, that is a whole, uh, I mean, that's a hornet's nest inside of a rattlesnake den inside of a field full of landmines and i don't envy the people that have to deal with that so let's just focus back on our world still it's not as 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 if while baseball's problems are significant it's not to say that dana doesn't have his hands full and really any promoter in the combat space has a really difficult job to do because they do Uh, it is on its own terms still very difficult and cost prohibitive right because not only are you not getting a gate uh, now you are also having to pay for all this extra COVID protocol, which I'm sure doesn't break the bank, but I'm guessing accumulatively really adds up. Okay. So Dana was asked after the last event, UFC in Vegas 2, about having crowds at 50%. Because as I've told you, if you go to New Zealand, New Zealand hasn't had a positive COVID taste, uh, or test excuse me, positive COVID case. And by that, I mean not a death, not a visit to the ER, not a hospitalization, not even a the swab found anything in over three weeks at this point. I mean, they appear to have eradicated it. Uh, and there's a whole conversation about how they did it, but they did. And there are other countries where they've done a really good job of minimizing it. Uh, if you actually look at our situation here in the United States, there are, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to draw one big picture because every state is a little bit different. Uh, in some cases, it's going up, but now new data indicates in places that it is going up. It tends to be among a less vulnerable population because it's like young people going out again. So what exactly does that mean? No one really knows. Probably they're going to be fine. Do they spread it to the vulnerable populations? Again, we're, we're dealing with a lot of different scenarios here and a different variables that are very hard to measure. But the one thing you can say is people keep talking in this country about a second wave. It, it's a bit of a misnomer. We, we had the first wave and it kind of crested, but it didn't really go back down to zero. If you look at the curves in France or Germany or Spain or even Italy, they had a clear peak and then a clear trough. We just had a clear peak and then it dropped off a little bit and then just stayed. And it varies state to state, but the overall national picture paints that one. Why do I bring this up? Because... I don't know how on earth you can do a gate here, even with that patchwork, right? So it's going to be great in some places and and not so bad in others. I I don't think it's very bad in Montana, for example, right? If you wanted to go there and on the other hand, uh, and then by the way, New York is doing way better. So that's great too. Uh, On the other hand, places like, let's say Florida and Texas, South Carolina, a buddy of mine went to South Carolina. He was said, uh, not only was there no social distancing, no one was wearing masks, no one was wearing masks indoors. 
nothing. It was as if they had completely forgotten about COVID. So I don't know how you're going to do it. But if you wanted to go to a place like New Zealand, you could. Or you could do what they're doing in places like Serbia. Now, I'm not here to say Serbia's got everything figured out. But listen to this. They've got a stadium that holds 50,000. What they did for a recent big soccer match is they had 25,000 people fill it. But they had to stay certain spaces apart and they had to leave and enter under certain exits. So there was a bit of a social distancing thing going on. You might be asking, well, how bad was COVID in Serbia? I did the numbers on this. They have 7 million people and they've had 250 deaths. 7 million relative to our 330 million is about 47 times as great. So if you actually do the math, 250 times 47, it ends up being around 11 or 12,000 uh, people who have died. And you realize we've had 10 times that amount. Uh, they've only had 11,000 positive cases. We have 20,000 a day. So <laughs> I just want to point out here, that's a country that has a fraction of the problem we do, even when you do it on a per capita basis. And they still did a 50% attendance with social distancing inside of a stadium. But apparently people liked it. It actually was something that people, when you, according to local reports that I read, they really enjoyed it. They were glad to get, okay, it's not the same as what we had, but it's better than the alternative. Well, someone asked Dana about this, not Serbia specifically, but about this idea of doing 50% crowds, which Texas has allowed. To me, I don't understand that, but because they didn't have the same situation that even Serbia did, it's even worse there, but okay. Nevertheless, he was asked about it. We have the cut on how he responded to it. Cut 10. What do you need to see? before you start thinking about going into arenas? I think it's going to depend on, you know, th this whole thing is state by state or country by country. Uh, you know, um, I, I know that there's a couple of states right now looking to open up the fans and uh, we're talking to them. Would you consider doing a thing where you have fans socially distanced or would you rather just, if you're going to do it, wait until you can do it fully? Yeah, I won't do that. I won't do a 50% arena. I'll just stay here. It makes more sense just to stay here. Uh, in New Zealand yesterday, they had their first sporting event, rugby, with fans. Could you potentially have Israel Adesanya fight Paulo Costa in New Zealand? D what, was, it, was it a full arena? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what's good is let, let them do that for a while and see how it goes and see what happens with, you know, depending on which network you listen to. Who the hell knows what's going on, so... At least if, the, if some of these guys in these other countries who were hit before we were, so they're coming out of it before we are, and they can, they can see how this thing plays out, and then we'll go from there. So here's the good news. The good news is, I got to tell you, I like the New Zealand option. They have held shows there before. They've been to Auckland, I think, a half a dozen times. Uh, they have uh, stadiums there that can hold 20,000 or more. I think the Hooker-Felder fight was in one of those arenas, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I have to look that up. But you get the idea. That is, to me, a very viable option, not least of which is because, hey, New Zealand doesn't have a COVID problem, but because, hello, <laughs> you got a whole team down there of killers. One of them is fighting in the UFC in two weeks. 
in uh, Las Vegas and Dan Hooker. But you've got Adesanya. He needs a fight. Volkanovski, I guess he's going to go to Fight Island. Um, but, you know, the whole team down there. And you could have a full arena with people and it would work. Again, I don't know what rules the government might impose for travel. That seems hard to predict, but that seems like maybe a solvable problem, I'm guessing. But I doubt that's a totally limiting factor. Okay, so here's my point about this. Dude, that's a real thing you could do. You could actually have a gate for something like that. Now, what you could charge reasonably, I don't know. Whether they want to do that option, again, you know, Dana's thing. Here's the thing I don't get. If you can go to a place that's 50% full... And you can do it, let's say, under the assumption that it's being done safely, which I don't know that you could do that in Texas. But if you could do that, why wouldn't you? That's the thing I don't get. It's like, let me see if I understand this. The gate is a significant portion of your revenue. An argument, by the way, that you're using, however disingenuous or fair it may be, it is certainly one they are trotting out to say, we can't pay the fighters more. And not really the fighters, the headliners. And you get an opportunity to go to a place like uh, we had Steve Kim on talking about, let's say, Allegiant Stadium in uh, Nevada. And again, I'm making this up. I don't know that you could do it there. But, you know, let's say it can hold 80, 90, 100,000. You could fill it with, let's say, 25, 30, 40,000. And you could make a gate on 30, 40,000 people and you wouldn't do it. (laughs) Why wouldn't you do it? Now, if the argument is, well, if we have to go to a place that's uh, where we could get 40,000 in the arena, but it'd have to be socially distanced, you could only do that in a place where you'd be running risks, and those are risks we can't run. Okay, fine. In other words, a place where the regulatory climate is not in keeping with the actual health climate, that it's regulatory uh, open and permissive, but the health situation doesn't match that fine. In that case, I think the prudence is, uh, well, well positioned and fair and understandable. But what I don't understand is this is a global business. COVID is a global crisis. Okay. But it has had a wildly disproportionate impact country to country. And in this country, State to state. Germany is a place the UFC has been a number of times. Hello, Germany is Europe's largest economy. You couldn't go there and have, again, they're not having uh, fans yet with Bundesliga, but that can't be far away. Or, you know, other places in the South Pacific that had done well. I don't think UFC's ever held a show in Taiwan. That might be a thing they've not done yet. Um, uh, I'm just pointing out, I understand that there's a certain ease and simplicity to going to the apex. And I think it's been, you know, before I was arguing that's not going to be the Alamo for them. And I was using Alamo, not quite, it's, you know, exactly the literal interpretation where things went quite bad at the Alamo. But I mean, a place you could retreat to. And that was, that was all the way back in late March, early April. Uh, now it, we're in a different scenario. And now it clearly is a place that they can do that. And I think there's a certain comfortability there. They're not getting a gate, but they don't have to deal with any extra travel costs. All of their staff live there. Uh, it's just, you know, they know the commission. They know the protocol. They know the ins and outs. There's a certain comfort there. Yeah, that's probably a smart thing for them to do. They might have deals with local hotels as well. I'm not entirely certain. 
I just feel like if you can go to a place like New Zealand or you can find some other country as the months develop where they're allowing 50% capacity at socially distance, but they're doing it in massive stadiums where you're still aggregately getting 25, 30, maybe even 40,000 people. You know, if your argument is we need this money to pay fighters more and we're losing a big chunk of it and you're just easily punting on it, then how serious is the loss? Right? You have a country that is COVID free now. If you're telling me that this is such an important part of your business and you can get it back there. And by the way, here's another benefit to New Zealand. The Kiwis watch UFC like we watch NFL football. So for NFL, yes, it's on Monday night and Thursday night and blah, blah, blah. But you know, Sundays, starting at 1 p.m. on the East Coast and so forth, that's how we consume American football. That's how they consume UFC. It starts around, my understanding, it's around noon for them. And they begin to watch it like that. It's like their Sunday evening, afternoon kind of thing. So you don't even have to alter the timing of the events Whereas, you know, the main event for UFC 251, dudes, that's taking place. The card, I think, starts at like midnight. Let me see the card. If it's what time is it, Cobb? So it's um, current time in Abu Dhabi. So it's currently 2 p.m. and 13 minutes on the East Coast. It's eight hours ahead. If the card starts at 6 p.m., that means the the prelim card starts at 2 a.m. there. Right. Which means the uh, prelim portion of the card for television starts at, uh, let's see. So it would be 4 a.m., which means that the main card starts there at 6 a.m. You don't even have to worry about that in New Zealand. Now, how many shows could you have in New Zealand before you ran through all the people who could pay for the gate? Probably, you know, you could maybe do a handful and then you have to be on your way. Okay. But if you really want to have an Israel Adesanya pay-per-view, you could do it in his home country. You could do it with fans in attendance. You could do it collecting a gate without social distancing, without having to adjust timeframes. You know, how serious is your gate problem if that's not a solution? I don't know. Seems like a fair question to me. 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. All right, I'm guessing that this next part of the show is going to be contentious, but I don't mean it to be because I'm honestly just trying to understand this. I don't have even the, I mean, when I say I don't have the slightest problem wearing a mask, I do not have the slightest problem wearing a mask. I went to Adidas, uh, their website last night. Do you guys know this? Adidas makes masks now. And I went and bought a pack of three. It was uh, 15 bucks. It looked pretty cool, right? They got a little nose wire in them too, so they kind of fit snug the whole bit. I've been wearing one that just kind of covers your face, but doesn't really cover the chin. It's more just covers the mouth and nose. Everyone's making masks these days. Before, they didn't want us to wear masks. And it turns out that the reason why public health officials at the time didn't want us to wear masks is, oh, well, they actually did, but they thought if they told us to, that there would be a shortage. And now that there's not a shortage, they're saying, okay, it's fine. I don't know that I understand that messaging. So if your argument is I'm against wearing masks because public health officials have been inconsistent with their messaging, I would not disagree with you even a little bit. They have been not merely inconsistent. They have, they have acknowledged their inconsistency. 
But I gotta, I gotta tell you, folks, I don't understand what the problem is. Even the Surgeon General got out here, I think, yesterday and made a pretty clear point, which was the more we wear these masks and the more we reduce transmission, the more we're going to be able to get back to normal. Folks, I gotta tell you, if you look at Japan, they did a poor job of closing things down early. They did a poor job of testing. They did a poor job of contact tracing. They basically did everything relative to us, and they don't have nearly the same outbreak as us. How do you explain what has happened in Japan without the one thing that they have that we don't, which is, and this is not just true this year, but true every year. You can go back and look at old Pride events, and you'll see thousands of people wearing masks. They do it during flu season every year. There is a comfortability in Japan with wearing masks. They have an extremely high level of mask wearing. Okay, upwards of deep into the 90%. Kids, old people, young, male, female, all demos wear it. And they don't bat an eyelid. And they don't have one fraction of the problem that we do. How is it possible to explain their COVID situation without masks? I do not know. I do not know. So here's my question at 877 Fight 93-877-344-4893. What is the big deal? <laughs> I have to wear a mask to go into my local Home Depot. Let me tell you how much I care. Not at all. And I know what some of you might say, oh, what, what about the carbon dioxide? Yes, there are some cases to be made that really prolonged inhalation of that can be dangerous for you. But in small doses, it turns out it's not really bad for you at all. There's very little evidence. And... If it shuts down the virus to the point where businesses can open back up and we can be around each other again, who cares? Who Seriously, how could you possibly care? This week on World of Basketball, Hall of Fame head coach Rick Pitino joined the show and he spoke about the crazy, intense Panathinaikos Olympiakos rivalry. Duke Carolina would be a church league game compared <laughs> to Olympiakos Panathinaikos. First, first and foremost, your bench is shielded with <laughs> bulletproof glass, and then you have a net around the court, so the hooligans can't throw things. And and this year, my owner had to leave at halftime because he was threatened with a guy holding a hand grenade. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the SiriusXM app and Apple Podcasts. We're talking about mask use. I went, uh, I've, 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 I've got a couple here. Where, where did I get them? I, um, I bought, oh, the last one I got, I got from the NBA store. It's just a cloth mask that goes around your ears and then covers your face and nose. My beard sticks out the bottom, so I look stupid, but whatever. Here's the deal. I had, uh, I had gone out of D.C. for the first time this past weekend since the pandemic started. And I was in, you know, I've just been in D.C. Hell, I'm not even sure I left my neighborhood, to be quite honest with you. What, did I even leave my neighborhood? Um, well, yes, I did. I guess I went down to the Capitol to go biking a couple of times. But in general, I, you know, I socially distanced, had a mask for that, the whole nine yards, you know. I'm not, I've, I've, I've been pretty good, man. I've gone to my local Home Depot to get stuff, but you have to wear, you have, they make you wear a mask to go inside there. So, you know, it is what it is. So the question I have is, like, what is the big deal with wearing a mask? to be quite honest with you. And here's why I ask this. I know it's become politicized and I'm trying to not do that. I swear to God, because I'll grant that the public health experts have been all over the place on this. 
for whatever their motivations, whether they just didn't know better or they were giving us bad messaging to prevent something and then change their mind or whatever you want to say. I, I will agree to that. There's, I mean, there's really no debate about that, that they have changed their tune. They clearly have. But the question is now, what do we want to do about it? And if you read around, first of all, there have been numerous studies to this point that show the effectiveness of masks. That's not very hard to, in terms of the reduction of uh, COVID uh, spread. Now, a lot of those deal with surgical masks, not necessarily N95 masks, but surgical masks, which uh, are going to be better than cloth masks. So there is some dispute about exactly how good it would be. But the thing I keep going back to is Japan. Japan, this is all verifiable. Please don't take, I'm begging you to not take my word for it. By all means, go verify this on your own. Try and find somebody, a reputable source, who can explain what happened in Japan without masks being, uh, and wide, dis- wide use of masks, upwards of 90% of the population, being a key contributor to it. Someone exp- Go and show me. Do not take my word for it. Go look it up. Okay? And then come back and tell me I'm wrong. Because everything I have seen from everybody on record is that there is no way to understand how COVID did not spread wide and far in Japan, uh, although it initially had, how it was stopped, essentially, in its tracks nearly, unless you posit that the use of masks had a pretty clear effect, which, again, that country has a high tolerance for it, because you can go back, literally, you can fire up Fight Pass right now, go find a uh, event in pride that took place in let's say like Japanese winter or something. And you will see thousands of people in the arena just wearing masks. I remember the first time I saw it like 10 years ago, I was like, why are all the Japanese wearing masks? And people were like, do they just do this during flu season? This is long before SARS and coronavirus and MERS and the whole nine yards. Okay. So anyway, I'm out in Northern Virginia and uh, in DC, dude, you got to be like hardcore about it. They don't let you go in establishments unless you have a mask on period. Now, if you're outdoors on a patio, because we're not even in phase two reopening, we're just in phase one, I think they let you take it off there. And that's fine because you could probably be outdoors if everything is spaced far enough apart and it's not going to be a big deal, but your wait staff will have gloves and a mask on, okay? So the question then becomes, what is the problem with wearing masks? Because in Northern Virginia, here is what I saw, and I don't know how representative this is of the entire state. But everywhere that I saw was, A, mask use relative to the city of D.C. was significantly lower. And two, I mean, the young folks were just not wearing it. And again, I'm not so much, the data is pretty clear on this point. If you're 25 years or younger and you get coronavirus, you know, I'm not here to say that it's no big deal. But chances are you'll be fine in the end, really. So again, that, that, and there's data to indicate that all these states that have reopened, it's all young people getting it. So we'll see what the impact ends up being uh, here in a couple of weeks or so, maybe a month. Fine. Okay. Uh, but I have to tell you, I don't understand, and, I, and, I'm not, and I'm not doing this to be like, oh, this is all one party's fault. It's not even what I'm saying. I'm literally, like, confused. I don't understand what the problem, and I mean that when I say it, I literally do not understand what the problem is with wearing masks. And here's why I bring it up. Because I was like, wow, why are people against this? There's something to it. And then I saw this video in, uh, like, Orange County, California, people losing their minds over wearing masks. I'm like, well, is any of this true? So I looked it up. Now, there are arguments you can make. One, public health officials have been inconsistent with messaging. True. Number two, are cloth masks as good at coronavirus reduction as surgical masks? 
There is some pretty clear reason to believe they might not be. Um, but some of that is just a little bit unknown. But, you know, can you say for certain that they are? Certainly you cannot say that, right? So it's not like the, it is a cure-all solution and all we have to do is just buy these things, slap them on our grill, and problem solved. That is not the argument that I am making. However, what I am saying is we have numerous studies outside of Japan that now indicate that they probably, probably are very good at reducing transmission. By the way, even better, there was some that I saw seen recently at merely just social distancing guidelines. Like if you have no social distancing and masks versus no masks and social distancing, which one gets you better reduction in coronavirus? The answer is masks. And again, if a private establishment wants you to wear it like a Home Depot to go in, I got to tell you, I don't understand the problem. So the two major concerns that I can understand beyond the ones I've mentioned, whether they're as good as surgical or whether public health officials have been consistent, are whether uh, or not there's some health effects to it. So is there carbon dioxide toxicity known as hypercapnia? And the reality is for that, there's virtually no evidence that I've been presented with that it, you are even close to anything like that with a mask. Number one, if you're wearing a cloth mask, it's so porous, it's virtually impossible to get it. I wore a cloth, ma a cloth mask to go biking for an hour in D.C. I didn't even get a headache. Okay. Now, I know somebody who went one for an hour and a half, hour and a half with a surgical mask, and they did get a headache. Uh, but I have... I've tried it out. I didn't, I didn't get a headache. Uh, there's virtually no evidence that we have that you can get hypercapnia or carbon dioxide toxicity as a consequence. So what about the other concern, which is about the reduction of oxygen, also known as uh, hypoxemia? Again, there's just no evidence that this is a thing you have to worry about. So is it uncomfortable? Yes. Do we look stupid? We certainly do. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to rob a bank every time I go into 7-Eleven for crying out loud with one of these things on my face. Is it the cure-all? No, it is not. Here's the thing I don't understand. What the resistance is. Because you cannot explain, I don't, or rather, I don't know how on earth you could explain what happened in Japan without masks being, if not the most important, certainly chief among all the other solutions that they put forward. I just don't, I don't know how you do it because it can't be any of the other things they did because they all did them poorly. So what's the big deal? You're not going to get sick. You're going to look stupid. Uh, you know, and that's that. But if it enables us to open more businesses, right? And businesses can get back to work and people can go to more places and we can get this economy going again. I got to tell you, I don't know that I understand the resistance. If you got to wear it to go into a Starbucks, just wear it to go into a Starbucks, man. And then when you get outside, throw it away. But I, I would like to see more. I mean, I think we're all on the same page and saying, wouldn't we like to see more businesses get open? Right? Wouldn't we want to see more things get back to normal? Riding public transit again? If you have that in your, in your city or state? I'm just saying, if it gets us from here to there quicker and the health effects are negligible... I, I got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm struggling here a little bit to understand what the resistance is to it. So I'm not presenting it to you to be the cure-all. I'm not presenting it to you to be like an elegant solution. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that. 
I just, people are like, I'm not, I would never wear a mask. Dude, why? You don't see any of these problems uh, with, with rejection in Europe or in parts of Asia. They don't have, they don't, they don't trip over it. So why are we tripping over it? I don't understand. If, I'll tell you this much, and maybe this is a false question and a false dichotomy, but if they were able to get us back into stadiums by making mask use mandatory, I got to tell you, I'd, I'd be going to stadiums, and I wouldn't trip over it at all. Now, how you do that and drink your beer, I don't know. So maybe it's not the right framing of a question, but I, I just don't understand the resistance. I, I get it. I get it. It's not going to solve the problem. You know, th- that is not what this is. I just, people are like, I would never wear a mask. Dude, why? Well, you could be fine. You'll be, you'll be all right. You know, if you have to work in a mine underground and you got to wear one of those for a 10-hour shift, you know, and there's poor ventilation generally, all right, it might be a little bit different. But, you know, for, the, for us donks who are working, I mean, I work from home. I can't wear one when I go to Home Depot. Really? I can't. I don't understand that. The biggest names in the combat sports world are on MMA Tonight. Cody Garbrandt joins us. I got to the title fast under two years in the UFC, won a world championship, trailblazed to the top. This time is going to be way more generous, way more sacrifice. And I just said, are you prepared to throw it all in and erase the last few years and what happened and go from there? Once I had that hard part with myself and, and stopped really making excuses or just got back to the hard work, I mean, the simplest fun of hard work pays off. Happy to be back, excited to have those feelings back inside the octagon, back to loving it and then just working hard for it. Tuesday through Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern. Our next guest, Mike Farron, can be heard alongside Jim Duquette weekdays on Power Alley, 10 a.m. Eastern on MLB Network Radio, Sirius 209 and XM89+. Plus. He's the play-by-play announcer, as well as the pre- and post-game host for the Arizona Diamondbacks. As I mentioned, it is Mike Farron. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm good, Luke. How are you? Doing well. Thank you, making, uh, thank you for making some time with us. All right, Mike. Imagine our audience is a little bit unfamiliar with what is happening in baseball. Can you state succinctly for us, uh, why has there been such an impasse to this point between labor and between the owners? So I'll try and do it as quickly as possible, because anything in baseball that involves contracts gets very, very complicated very quickly. But because baseball hadn't started its season and there was a national emergency declared, the commissioner's office could use force majeure to basically suspend player contracts. They agreed with the Players Association on what should have been opening day on a plan that uh, if baseball were to return this year, that the players would receive a prorated portion of their salary, uh, so as opposed to you know over 162 games, however many games played to be paid their daily rate, um, and also receive an advance on the salaries uh, for the season to cover time that, that wasn't being played. Um, and in addition, Major League Baseball would get a chance to be able to set the schedule and that they would be able to have further discussions um, on economic feasibility if games had to be played without fans. And what's happened is that last part of the language was not clear in the agreement, and the owners have taken it to mean that they can reopen the agreement and discuss players' salaries and, and ask them to take a larger cut. And the players have said, we've already agreed to what our day rate will be. We should get paid um, what we're what we're supposed to be, and it's up to the commissioner to set the schedule, and if he doesn't want to negotiate it, just tell us when and where we can play. So that's the basics of why this is going on. This would not have happened if it were like the NBA or the NHL and they'd completed you know, 75% of their season. Um, this is all because we haven't played a single game and no team has any revenue. 
So uh, just as a sort of a, a follow-up there, if they had played, let's say, 75% of the season, where would we be? And they had to stop, let's say, to COVID. Would there be a, a protocol in place about how to go forward for a postseason? I mean, there's not really protocol, but it would have been it would have been a lot easier to handle. I think. I mean, I think what you're seeing is less a fight over money in the NHL and the NBA because all of their their you know most of their their revenue has been acquired. Um, the way that the the contracts for 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 the postseason work is that the owners receive um, all of the television revenue. The players get get the first four games of the World Series and first three uh, games of the League Championship Series. I believe that's the split on what ended up being the postseason pool. So there's a little bit of a difference there, and there probably would have had to be some negotiation if you're going to play a postseason, like, say, at a neutral site, theoretically, with no fans. But it would have been much easier to get to than the point that we're at right now, which is, you know, play, players you know, feel that they deserve what, what they should be getting on a daily basis. Um, you know, they already feel that they've taken what will be more than a 50% pay cut. And owners have no revenue coming in, and 40% of the revenue that, that, that the owners make comes from ticket sales, concessions, in-stadium signage, those kind of events, parking. And so that's where, where a lot of this discussion lies as to you know, how you divide up what's left of the money. So this is a really interesting situation where the business model, in terms of how uh, money is generated, it has fallen mm-hmm. to this point quite heavily on the owners. And so what it sounds like you're saying is they're going to the players saying, listen, we're having to take a haircut here on a number of different levels. Yes, you're getting a prorated salary. Obviously, you're not going to get the 100% of it, but we need you to take an additional cut to match the sort of economic pain that we have to suffer as well. Is that a fair assessment of the owner's position? Yeah, that, that is. And the, the argument against it is that, and, and I think that it was Scott Boris, the agent who said this, you know, the owners are interested in, in privatizing the, the gains and socializing the losses in this. Baseball has had, what, about a 17-year run of record revenues last year was ten point seven billion dollars or somewhere around there, and there there is not a direct link because it's an uncapped sport between revenue and player salaries. In fact, the player salaries are only about forty eight percent of revenues. I think is where it stands right now, or what's considered baseball revenues. And the other part of it is that even though the owners have been willing to open a portion of the books. The Players Association contends that there's a, a, a lot of revenue that teams bring in um, that does not necessarily fall under what's outlined in the collective bargaining agreement. It's very vague compared to other to the other sports, and so if a team has a large ownership stake in a regional sports network and is making money off of that, um, they don't necessarily report all of that to the revenue sharing uh, model, which means that there's more income that's coming in. And that the players have also argued that, you know, places like Chicago, where the Cubs owners have built up a, a lot around Wrigley Field or in St. Louis where the Cardinals owners have built up the ballpark village around the ballpark, that that's ancillary revenue that should be considered. Um, and really the only public access we have into any numbers, it comes with the Braves who are owned by Liberty Media and have to, to publicly 
produce those numbers, and so you can get a sense of what the battery area around the ballpark makes as well. So it's very complicated, and a lot of it has to do, frankly, with vague language in both the collective bargaining agreement and March's memo of understanding. Hmm. Mike Farron joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. Okay, so uh, obviously I, I live in Washington, D.C., Mike. I'm a Nationals fan. I follow Max, Max Scherzer on Twitter, and he has sort of said, uh, listen, at this point, uh, we are not going to do anything else in terms of negotiation. You know, the commissioner can tell us when and where to show up. So my understanding, Mike, is that the commissioner, Rob Manfred, can simply say, uh, all right, I'm going to intervene here unilaterally, and I'm going to have a game of, or excuse, excuse me, an abbreviated season of 54 games. Is that true? And if so, is that binding? Like, can anyone appeal that? Yeah, so, so um, yes, it is true, but there has to have been proof of a good faith negotiation along the way to get to that point. And both sides contend that the other side has not argued in good faith. So here's what would likely happen if the commissioner were to put together a schedule around 50 games is that the Players Association would likely file a grievance saying that they did not follow the letter of the March ruling, which is to to schedule the most amount of games that's economically feasible, and it would go to a hearing. Now, that would not impact the season. You know, they would get on the field and they would play. But if, in fact, an arbiter, uh, the arbiter of that grievance found in favor of the players, it could end up costing the owners, all told, upwards of a billion dollars. And I think hmm. that that's why, why um, Rob Manfred, as, as the commissioner and basically the COO of the owners, has been pushing all along to find some sort of negotiated settlement, because if they do that, then it reduces the chance of being able to file a grievance. And some of his comments on ESPN last night took great umbrage at, at some of the comments from the chief negotiator for the Players Association, Bruce Meyer, who said that, that he said that, that he let people know that they would be filing a grievance as soon as the season was scheduled. Well, and Meyer may have told some, of, some people that, and that may have been the case. But that's one of the reasons why they want some sort of negotiated settlement. What he didn't lead on was that one of the things in Meyer's last letter to MLB was that the, all of the health protocol, the rules such as um, there's been talking using the designated hitter in the National League this year or trade deadlines or what roster sizes look like, all of those things still need to be negotiated. And the Players Association said that they were open to talk about that at any point. They just were not interested in negotiating on the money anymore. And that's kind of where we stand. So it's going to be up to the commissioner to get either into a, a actual physical or a virtual room with Tony Clark, the head of the Players Association, and iron all that out. And based on some of the comments today from Randy Levine, the president of the Yankees, it certainly seems like that's the commissioner's focus right now. Okay, so uh, there's a uh, there's so many different pieces to this. Let's say that oh, they yeah. actually do. Let's say they actually do move forward with a 54 game season, right? Let's just, for whatever reason, let's just say that that works. That is a very weird way to do baseball, and the reason why I know this again, I'm certainly the furthest thing on earth from a baseball expert, but I am a Nats fan. Through 50 games, they might have been the worst season, uh, worst team in baseball last season, and then they ended up winning the World Series. So. I I don't know exactly what kind of baseball we're going to get, or even if it's really worth it at 54 games. What concerns do you have as an observer about, I mean, obviously it's better than having no baseball, I guess, but that it seems like hardly any kind of great solution. Well, it's certain, I mean, one, it's kind of what we're left with, right? And especially in, you know, the, the other part of this that just hasn't been discussed, because clearly the money has been a bigger issue for both sides, is that, 
Coronavirus cases are rising in states that house half of the major league teams, and that's a pretty significant issue. So the virus has kind of dictated a good chunk of this, despite the fact that both sides have been bickering back and forth about money. I mean, that's really what what ended up leading us down this path. Um, and so, so I think that you, you kind of have to take what you get. Personally, I, I think that there are some elements of a shorter season that are very exciting because if if let's let's use fifty four as an example because it's actually a good baseball number. That's one third of what the standard schedule would be. Um, a fifty four game season, like all of a sudden, every game has three times as much importance, and so. You're right that a team can't recover necessarily from a 19 and 31 start, but the intensity level, especially when you know you're looking for any level of intensity when there's no fans in the stands, um, should be ratcheted up for each one because each game is that much more important. So it certainly would be unlike anything that we've seen. The closest I can compare it to is a college season. In college, uh, the NCAA Division One plays 56 games, so it's similar to that. Um, but it certainly would be a an unusual year and you know beyond that you know coronavirus testing and whether or not players decide to sit out because either they have medical issues or family members have medical issues or they, they just are concerned about their safety all of that is stuff that still hasn't been figured out yeah you sort of got to my next question here about the coronavirus um obviously the nba's plan is just to put a bubble around everybody and that might work i guess we'll see it's certainly something Baseball, to me, seems like you have much larger rosters. Obviously, you have much bigger teams, um, much bigger travel needs. To what extent, given everything that we've you already really discussed, are you concerned about coronavirus, I don't know, derailing plans, upending the season? Like, what, How do you figure that the virus is going to play a role in, in baseball for the next, I don't know, six months or so? I mean, it's really hard to say, but I think in, in based on what their plan is, which is to play games in home ballparks wherever possible, as opposed to playing under that bu- bubble plan, you certainly are leaving it up to more risk. And I think it becomes a matter uh, not of you know whether or not someone is going to test positive for COVID-19, but, but as to how you mitigate the risks when it does happen. And that, I think, is where my concern would lie is, you know, is there enough testing? They are trying to be mindful that, you know, they've converted their own lab that they use for minor league drug testing in Utah to be able to handle COVID tests. But um, they're going to have to have a 24-hour return time. And we've already learned some of the fickle nature of this disease that, you know, it doesn't necessarily show up right away. So there'll be temperature checks and there'll be some, you know, day of tests and they'll be testing guys three times a week. But and have to report temperatures and all of these things that are still kind of essential. And I, I cannot imagine that they're going to be in a position where, um, you know, where, where somebody wouldn't test positive over the course of the year. I think it's just a matter of how you, you mitigate that. And I think part of that is that they're going to have, you know, in essence, a taxi squad where each team rather than it, it's unlikely we play a minor league season, but each team would have about 60 players that will come back um, and, you know, they will uh, basically be in reserve working out and playing intra-squad games and whatnot, the, the players that aren't on the active roster. Um, if, if the team should need them over the course of the year for either injury or because of the coronavirus. Hmm. All right. So uh, one more of these follow-ups, which is my understanding is the CBA, the new CBA is set to be renegotiated next year or before the next season. To what extent do the, does the current climate poison the well for the, that go round of negotiations? 
So it's actually a year. There's one more year left on this after this. I see. So it's December 1st of 2021 is where it, it, it goes. Um, where does it poison the well? I mean, I certainly don't think that it helps, but I think you've gotten some pretty clear indications from ownership and some of the comments that they've made. You know, Ken Kendrick, who's the managing general partner of the Diamondbacks, uh, Tom Ricketts, who's the owner of the Chicago Cubs, have let it be known that they are more interested in a revenue split, which is similar to what the other sports leagues have. Now, the difference between baseball and those other sports leagues is that baseball does not have a cap, and that's something that the union has always opposed and to this point has been quite successful in opposing. Um, So there would need to be some sort of other crazy concessions, not to mention that um, one of the things that has changed in baseball as they have gotten better at understanding the aging curve of players is that – there have been fewer big contracts given to aging free agents who are kind of average or better players who reach that point because teams feel that they can get similar production out of younger players. And there's not enough dollars that have gone to those players who are actually taking on more of the role and more of the, the, the burden for the team's success and, and statistical success. And so there needs to be a seismic change inside the union, which has always battled for free agency as being the key part uh, of it, but to be able to retain free agency, but also ensure that more money is funneling to those younger players. So baseball 2022, I think from a financial standpoint and the way that baseball's finances are looked at is going to look completely different than it would have in a normal 2020 season, or even the way it may look in 2021. And that takes a long time to negotiate that And you're right, there's a lack of trust on both sides. The players do not trust the commissioner, Rob Manfred. Rob Manfred does not have a particularly great relationship with Tony Clark, it does not seem. There seems to be a lack of trust there. And that's a whole other segment for another time as to how it got to that point. But let's just say that there there is... Uh, a lot of acrimony as it stands right now. And if you consider what's going on right now, um, an unintended work stoppage, the least, the last thing that baseball can afford is to have a more significant one with a lockout going into the 2022 season. All right. So that's my last question about this, which is we we had discussions on this side of the uh, sports world. I cover combat sports and what would happen Mm -hmm. if, uh, for example, there was, uh, I mean, I know this, but MMA and boxing are back in a very reduced capacity, but they are back. But here's the thing. I know that there is demonstrable damage from the last lockout in terms of what it did to baseball. On the other hand, I have to tell you, certainly I'm not here arguing that if there is no baseball, that's not a big deal. But I do think there are some people saying, oh, my God, it'd be a disaster for the game. Really? Right. I mean, like if people who like baseball are just going to stop watching baseball, I mean, even when it came back, I have a hard time believing that. So exactly how bad would it be if there's no baseball? Well, it wouldn't be good. In in the words of Phillies manager Joe Girardi, it's not what you want. Um, You know, I I think Russ Carlton at Baseball Prospectus, who's consulted for a couple of teams, did a pretty good study today showing that it took 12 years for baseball's attendance to recover from the work stoppage in 1994. And that involved the cancellation of the World Series and obviously a lockdown spring training in 1995 where the owners planned to go with replacement players until the National Labor Relations Board stepped in. 
So there was, there is a little bit of history in how it affects your fans' views. And, you know, we just have seen this what long gone summer you know, documentary that ran the other night on ESPN talking about the summer of 98 and how Sosa and McGuire helped to bring baseball back and brought some, some energy and, and, you know, more enthusiasm to it. But it was another eight years before the average attendance reached the level that it had been before the strike. So, I do think that there is a chance for more uh, a more significant um, a more significant drain. Listen, if they can't come to, to grips over the financials during a pandemic, it's it, it really is a terrible look. But I do tend to agree if you're going forward and like let's say let's say the worst case happens and they can't come to an agreement on this year or or even like let's say it gets taken out of their hands, which I think people would be much more understanding about if you know all of a sudden we have to shut down a bunch of places again because the coronavirus is out of hand, like I think people would be much more understanding. But then you need to use this time to be able to extend the agreement because I what I do think would have a significant impact is, okay, you've been fighting over the money now. It's leading to a truncated season. It's leading to a shorter season than you could have had. And then we're going to go back through this in another 18 months. I don't know that fans, even hardcore fans, have the stomach for that. I'll be honest. I don't know that I have the stomach for that. And I breathe baseball. Like, it's everything to me. And I'm not sure that I can handle that because I do find a good chunk of this very distasteful. Uh, Mike, I got to tell you, this is exactly the interview that I wanted to have. I really appreciate it. And if you want more of Mike, he is you can listen to him along with Jim Duquette weekdays on Power Alley, 10 a.m. Eastern on MLB Network Radio, Sirius 209, XM 89. And of course, assuming that there are Diamondbacks games, you can check him out there as well. Mike, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. No problem, Luke. Take care. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at LThomasNews and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.